You only get that like spidey sense that all's not well. It's almost a made for Hollywood moment. This time my legs were outside one side of his mouth and my arm, head and shoulders outside the other. He, he just went berserk. I guess at least now I knew where I was. I was head first up to my waist down the hippo's throat. Hello, you are listening to Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. It is me, Daisy. Welcome. This is a podcast all about extraordinary people and extraordinary stories. Here we will shine the spotlight on their journeys and hopefully learn something about ourselves and the way that we live our lives from their experiences too. Join me as we get to know our guest. Paul Templar was 27 years old and working as a canoe safari guide, taxiing tourists up and down the Zambezi River. He had done so for six years and was experienced in his field. But on the day of March 9th, 1996, he was about to come face to face with one of the water's greatest dangers. His boat was rammed and he was swallowed headfirst by a hippo. So Paul, how did your morning start out on the day of the accident. Paint the picture for me. Sure, Daisy. I remember waking up. It was just another beautiful day in Africa. And I I remember waking up wondering what the day held in store. You see, uh, on that particular day, I was supposed to be doing some problem animal control. There was this pride of lion that were making a nuisance of themselves. They were attacking and eating some of the local villages. And I was supposed to be going in with a team to try to help take care of that problem. Things didn't go the way they were supposed to, and we had some bureaucratic snafus, et cetera. And so by about lunchtime, we knew there wasn't going to be any hunting that day. About the same time, I found out that a friend of mine, a fellow guide, had come down with malaria, and he was supposed to be leading a canoe safari that afternoon. And so they asked me if I would lead the trip. The day... The day was just another beautiful day in Africa, and I was out doing what I love doing. The problem animal control, that, that, that was exceptional, but the idea of lining up and running a safari in the afternoon was about perfect. How did you get into this line of work, Paul? Was this something that you always wanted to do? You know, actually, I always had a love of the great outdoors. Um, I didn't go straight into it. Um, when I finished school, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I went and I traveled the world. I spent some time, I served in the British Army for a while. And and wherever I went, I kind of felt like I wasn't there um, until I went back home. I went out on safari. My mom sent me out on a safari as a gift. And I realized that's what I wanted to do with my life. And so I went and I got licensed um, in as many areas of safari guiding as I could. And I loved the water, being on the water, in the water, um, so being a river safari guide was, uh, it was awesome. And you'd taken tourists, I guess, up and down this river many times before. And I think I, I read somewhere that you said you were previously aware of the hippo that attacked you and you'd sort of learned to keep your distance from it. On this particular day that you were, I guess, taxiing tourists down the Zambezi River, how many boats were sent out? How many of you were there? So on this particular day, there were six uh, clients. And there was me and three other apprentice guides. 
So the, the, the configuration was we had these Canadian style canoes. They could seat two clients um, in the front seat and the middle seat, and then a guide at the back. So we had three canoes, and then we had one chap paddling in a safety kayak. So it was pretty small armada. It was four little canoes. Uh, the idea was we would drift down. It was late afternoon. The idea is drift down from a point just above Victoria Falls. And you drift down to the waterfall and you can see the mist rising up above it. And it's just spectacularly beautiful. And the idea is the clients sit back, relax, and just enjoy being paddled down the river. They sit there and they sip on cocktails and they munch on snacks and they take in the flora and the fauna. It's, it's, it's just glorious. And what was the pivotal moment that things began to change, that things weren't going as expected? We'd been paddling for a little while and everyone had settled into the mode. And, and I remember we came across this pod of hippos and they were sitting there. And so we started talking about hippos and we talked about how big they can get. And uh, of course, there's always someone on a safari who goes, is it true that they kill more people every year than any other animal? And so we explore that phenomenon. So th that brought up, we don't want to get too close to them. So mm -hmm. I, knew, I knew that stretch of river pretty well. And I could see what looked to me like a safe route around the hippos. So I, I got our group and I said, okay, follow me. So I led the way and I went around the pot of hippos. Once you learn to read the water, you can see where it's pretty shallow. And I followed this route and I got safely past them. I ended up at the mouth of this little channel. The boat behind me did the same. The safety kayaker did the same. And to answer your question, when I know, knew things were going south was when there was suddenly this loud like whack behind me, this loud noise. And I turned just in time to see the back of the third canoe. It must have been about four or five feet up out of the air. And there was this hippo underneath the canoe. And the guide at the back, Evans, was catapulted through the air. And this was all like unfolding as I looked. The canoe fell back down upright. Evans, however, was in the water. So that's, that's not good. Um, because not only was there now an angry hippo who had just attacked a canoe, this was also a stretch of river that's loaded with pretty large crocodiles. So I knew that we needed to get Evans out and we needed to get him out quickly. This was all a little confusing because at the same time, I had noted that there was a female hippo and a calf pretty nearby. And just the whole scenario, the way it was unfolding didn't make any sense based on my experience. What was this rogue male? Because the hippo that had hit this canoe was clearly a rogue male, just based on his size and, and some history that I had with the brute, um, with a female and a calf. So fortunately the canoe was upright. So one of the other apprentices, Ben said, Ben, Get a hold of the clients. So he got a hold of the clients. He was able to tow them into relative safety. There was this uh, cluster of rocks sticking out of the river. And uh, I didn't have time to drop my clients off because we knew that we needed to get Evans out pretty quickly. So I paddled into Evans, told him to hang in there and paddled for all I was worth to get a hold of him because I needed to get him before he washed into the female hippo in the calf because that would not be good. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I get about as close as I can to him and it's, it's almost a made for Hollywood moment. I'm leaning over, 
my fingers are stretching towards him. He's leaning up. And as our fingers almost touch, the water between us just like erupted. Oh, my goodness. It, it happened so fast. I had no idea what was going on. I just knew that everything suddenly went dark and, and quiet. And from my waist up, I, I wasn't dry, but I wasn't wet either. Not like my legs. So I could feel that there was a difference in temperature and texture. And then I felt this incredible pressure crushing down on my lower back. And I tried to move and I couldn't. I was just like, it was as if I was in a clamp. And my mind started to, to go a little. And I, I had no idea where I was, what was going on. But somehow I managed to get one hand free and feeling around, I could feel the bristles on the hippo's snout. I guess at least now I knew where I was. I was head first up to my waist down the hippo's throat. It's funny, some pictures stick in your mind, and, and this was more an emotional one. I remember the first response I had just being incredible relief, because I knew I, I knew wherever I was wasn't good, but I'd figured I was either inside a hippo or inside a crocodile. And for some reason, I thought I had a better chance with a hippo. So that, that relief changed to Arakaraki pretty quickly when I couldn't get out. I couldn't mm -hmm. move. And then fortunately, I think just because I was wedged so far down his throat, I must have kicked off some gag reflex or who knows what. But he opened his mouth and somehow I managed to grab a hold of the tusk, pull myself out and I burst to the surface and took a deep breath and came face to face with Evans, the guy I'd been trying to rescue. I was like, we got to get out of here. So started swimming and then you know, when you get that like spidey sense that all's not well. So, mm -hmm. so I turn and I look back and sure, Evans was right where I'd left him. I mean, his eyes were huge and he was just like staring at me. I, th I think terror and panic had overwhelmed him. So I turned and I swam back for him and I was just moving in to go for your classic lifesavers hold when wham, I was hit from below. Once again, I was up to my waist down the hippo's throat. This time my legs were trapped, but my hands were free. So I tried to go for my gun. I, I had a 357 Magnum revolver that I would take with me just in case something like this happened. But I couldn't even get close to getting a hold of it. The hippo was just thrashing me around. Anyway, he spits me out again. This time when I get to the surface, I look around and there's no sign of Evans. And I think that means Mac, who is the safety kayaker, and Ben, the other guy, they must have rescued him. And, and so now I knew I needed to get out of there. And by all accounts, I was doing pretty well. And I was making pretty good progress until I remember I came over for a stroke and I just saw the hippo charging in towards me. His mouth was wide open as he zeroed in and then just scored this direct hit. Um, his tusks tearing through my chest and my torso. And this time my legs were outside one side of his mouth and my arm, head and shoulders outside the other. And he, he just went berserk. One of the other clients said it was like watching a vicious dog just trying to rip apart a rag doll. And, and for me, for me, everything was kind of going in slow motion. When we went underwater, I would hold my breath. When we were on the surface, I would suck in air. And all the while, I would try to hold on to the tusks that were boring through me, just so that my flesh didn't tear so much as he shook me about. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this carried on for quite a while. Um, and then, I don't know, the hippo must have, for some reason, decided it was time to head to the bottom of the river. And 
I remember he went and sat on the bottom and there I am. I'm just lying. He's got me clamped inside his mouth and I'm looking up and I can see the different hues of like green and yellow. I can see the sunlight. It's, it's on the water surface and I, I'm watching my blood like mingle with the water. I'm lying there and I, I remember wondering, huh, when am I going to bleed to death or if I'm going to drown? It was just this incredibly non-panicked, just, huh. And then I remember wondering, I wonder who can hold their breath the longest. And this hippo and I just sat on the bottom of the road. There was no fight left in me. Hippo surges towards the surface again, decides it not, it's not enough yet, spits me out again. This time when I break the surface, uh, Mac, my, my friend, Mike McMara, um, just incredible courage. Um, he came out in his kayak to try to rescue me. And I was able to grab a hold of the handle on the boat's nose. And, um, and Mac, I don't know how he did it. He towed me to relative safety. And um, we were able to patch me back together. And yeah, bad day at the office. Oh, Paul, it is just the most unbelievable story. And, and I, I, as I said, I, I had a little bit of knowledge about this story, which is why I really wanted to speak to you. But just to hear you retell it, it it's just the most incredible experience. I just cannot believe you are sitting here speaking to us today about it, but I'm so, so thankful you are. And I'm so thankful you had, you know, your colleagues around you that could pull you to safety. Continuing the conversation on Proverbs after this short break. Is there a specific protocol of what you're supposed to do if you ever encounter or are attacked by a hippo or is that genuinely just your fight or flight kicking in and trying to make best of the situation? As far as protocols go, the, the, the problem with, uh, with the protocol with the hippo is if by the time it gets a hold of you, because they are so incredibly big, so incredibly powerful, um, and because the, the, the way that they destroy whatever it is that they're fighting against, they've got these tusks and it's like crush and destroy, like just make big holes and tear apart, is, is truly the, the, I think, I mean, I'm not being fatuous here or facetious, but I think the, the protocol is pray and just mm. try to stay alive. Mm. Try to stay alive and wait for your opportunity. Um, mm. An opportunity will show up. Um, I know when I was getting attacked at first, I was fighting and I was wasting an awful lot of energy because no matter what I did, it did absolutely nothing to the hippo and just robbed me of a lot of energy. Mm. I think once the strategy shifted, and I'm not putting it down to my strategy that I survived, I think there's a divine providence and a whole lot of luck that the gaps appeared. And I was fortunate that I took them and that um, I had a crew who were incredibly brave and courageous and risked their lives to save mine. Were you aware of the damage that had been done to your body? Did you see any visible injuries that you had sustained or were you still sort of in that state of, I guess, complete shock with just adrenaline pumping through your veins? Yeah, I, was a, I was a hot mess. Mm. Um, so I knew that I, I was in bad shape. I knew like my left arm, uh, the technical turn is degloved. So from the elbow down, it had just been crushed to a pulp and the, the skin had been pretty much pulled off. I had my both, I bites through both of my shoulders. 
Uh, so my arms were barely still attached. My foot and the bottom of one leg had been crushed to a pulp. I had a punctured lung, which meant that when I spoke, blood came out of my mouth. And there was something like 38 major bite wounds, my, the front of my head. Um, so I knew I was a mess. The curious thing was, at first, there wasn't the associated level of pain. Mm. It was, my brain was pretty clear. And it may have been my training with the British Army. It may have been my safari guide training. It may have been my family of origin. I don't know. But it pretty much stayed in the, okay, here's the solution. We need to MacGyver because the first aid kit had washed downstream. So we were doing things like, sealing my punctured lung with saran wrap from some snacks and tearing up shirts to keep arms attached. And um, it was only um, a little while later when I was being paddled to shore because once we had me patched up, we still, we didn't know where Evans was. Mm. So the plan was put me in a canoe, Ben, the other guide would paddle me and we'd follow the current, hopefully find him and get to the shore and call in an extraction team. And the the tricky part with that was the hippo was still there. So when I talk about the courage of my team, Ben, the other guide, he got into the canoe with me and we had to paddle past this hippo to find Evans. And the hippo would, would make it like, oh, 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 oh and come and bump up against the canoe. And my, I think we all have levels on what the body and the mind can deal with. And mine was getting pretty close to saturation point. I knew that if the hippo knocked me into the water, I was done. I knew I didn't have any fight left in me. Yeah. And it was at that point that I had this moment. Um, I could describe it in physical and psychological measures, but to me, it was more spiritual than anything else. I had this moment of this realization that it was my moment of choice. Should I go? Should I stay? Mm. Should I fight my way through this and stick around? Or should I just give up and let it go? Um, So I chose to stick around and the pain that came with that decision, that's when the pain came. And I quickly was like, oh, can I change my mind? But by then it was too late, I guess. I was sticking around. So where were you take and pull and and how did you how did you begin to recover from from this attack so i was first taken to a hospital in victoria falls which is near where the attack happened but there was there weren't the requisite medical facilities or surgeons there so the closest hospital with a surgeon that could work on me was about five hour drive so all told it was about eight hours from attack to when i got to a surgeon who could work on me when i got there they thought they were taking off both arms, one leg. Mm. Um, a, a crazy thing happened there. There's probably one of the things that became so formative to the rest of my life. So I'm lying there waiting for the surgeon. Mm. And the surgeon comes. Now, little known fact, if you're conscious and you're the one there, you have to give authorization for the surgery. So I'm hearing all this talk about both arms and a leg coming off. And the surgeon comes in and I said to him, hey, doc, I know that you're going to do what you got to do, but what do you say you take the minimalist approach? I don't remember saying that. He, he was telling me the story afterwards. Mm-hmm. And he said in that moment, he had a plan. He had a strategy on how, what he was going to do. And it was take off both arms and a leg. That was the safest way. And he admitted that, frankly, he didn't think I was going to live. But he said in that moment, the way I spoke, he was like, this kid's going to fight for it. So why not? 
and he made that call to do a way more complicated surgery. It turned out he ended up having to go back in a few days later and take off more than he initially took off. But had I not had that conversation, life would have turned out very different. So the, the I guess the learning there, he was a great, he was a fantastic man. He he not only left me with um, one arm and both of my legs, but you asked how my recovery was. I was a real pain in the neck. I, I was an awful patient. Um, I felt sorry for myself. I was pissed off. I felt guilty because Evans had died. Um, they'd found his body a few days after the attack. Wasn't a scratch on him. He had drowned. Um, so so I, w- I was not real good to be around. And Dr. Nube, that was the surgeon, he came up to me one day. And um, when I was too much of a pain in the neck, the nurses would put me in a wheelchair and put me in this this little courtyard because there's only so much you can do with an arm that barely works in a wheelchair. You go around and around in circles till you're exhausted. And then the doc came and he said, well, you've always got to remember this. You're the sum of your choices. You're exactly who, what, and where you choose to be in life. Now, at that time, I wasn't really all that impressed with what he had to say. I remember thinking, that's really easy for you to say, Doc. You're not the one sitting here with all these bits and pieces chopped off. But you know what? In that moment, I realized he was probably right. I I just wasn't ready yet to stop playing the victim. I wasn't ready yet to stop feeling sorry for myself. It was far, far easier for me just to blame everyone and everything else for all of the bad things. I suppose you go through stages of of your rehabilitation, I can imagine, where it is that stage at first of blaming, of anger, of of sadness, because you're, you're trying to compartmentalize what has happened and how your life may change. How did you then start to get your life back on track? I was fortunate Daisy, that I had a really awesome support group of friends and family who at the time I thought they were being brutal and mm-hmm. hard, but they just didn't let me sit around. Mm-hmm. They were like, okay, back at it. And the river that I was attacked on, the Zambezi, had never been canoed from source to sea. It had never been done. And a few of my friends and I had talked about it as as people do. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we did that someday? And so when I got out of hospital, one of my dear, dear friends came to me and he's like, options, we can walk it or figure out a way to canoe it. So we figured out, we got a process to build me a kayak paddle so I could kayak with one arm. And I think the biggest part of my rehab was I put together an expedition team and then led it. And at the time, we completed the fullest descent of the Zambezi River to date. It took us about three months to paddle almost 1,600 miles. And I think that was incredibly cathartic. Yeah. It's so interesting how people, I guess, process different traumas as well. Some people avoid the situation, can never go back into a situation like that again. But for you, it was very much getting back on the horse after being, you know, knocked off and and, and suffering this traumatic attack and event that, you know, did did change a part of your life. The, the fact that you found therapy in doing that, because ultimately that is what you loved is is really is a really, really incredible story. And I read somewhere as well, you did you say, Paul, you were convinced that you had encountered that same hippo again after the attack as well? Okay, so this is my story I hold to be true. But um, had you not brought it up, I wouldn't have brought it up. But I, mm. this is what happened. And people can choose to believe it or not. So we're on the Source to Sea expedition. And we're about a month and a half into it. And we were at the spot where the attack happened. 
Mm. And we've got the the fellow who, Dave Williams, who sponsored the expedition, has flown out from the States to be there. We've got people filming it. So we've got this whole crew and we come up and we're drifting down and I'm talking people through what happened and I can point to the specific landmarks where it happened and it's fantastic. And then I go, okay, guys, can you put your cameras away? Can we just have a moment? And so everyone puts the cameras away. We'll have a moment. And I say, I'd just like to say a prayer for, for Evans. Like this was, that he died here. Mm. So we're drifting, we're drifting up. All the canoes are together. We're all just drifting up and we're, we're drifting down the river past the spot. And I'm pointing at that's where the hippo must've been hiding. And I'm pointing at a spot maybe 20 yards away from us. And I'm in the canoe closest to where that is. When suddenly out of the water, jaws agape, comes this hippo. It bites down literally right next to my spot. People who were on the shore said they could hear me screaming, not again, not again. What is with this hippo, man? Like, Paul, he has it in for you. Oh, my goodness. So people say to me, they say, that, what's up with that hippo? Because here's another fun fact. This hippo was a really old, really big male. Mm-hmm. And when he attacked me, the day we're talking about was the eighth attack that he had, he had com- if we're going to call it committed. Mm. A few months earlier, I was his first attack. I had been leading a similar safari and he had attacked me on that day. And each day the trips, had, the, the, each attack had got significantly more intense. Since after the last attack, he disappeared, was never seen again until that day and not seen since. And teams went out. He was now a problem animal because he had killed people. Mm-hmm. So I, to my dying day, I'll say it was that Hippo, the the chaps who were on the trip with me that day saw it. They knew it was that Hippo. Mm-hmm. You've never seen a group of kayaks just bombshell in different Oh directions. my goodness. This is like a severe case of like toxic masculinity. Like this <laughs> this like dominant male energy. <laughs> And this hippo is just not having it. Like it's just, not at all. It's crazy. Oh my goodness. But I'm, I, as I said, it's such a privilege to speak to you here today on this podcast, and and I, I'm. I'm just so inspired by you as a person and the energy that you exude. And I just feel like you take on things because you love them and you don't let anything stop you. And I just genuinely think that is such an inspiring takeaway from this episode in particular. I want to know what is going on in your life right now. What are you up to? What are your plans? What are you doing? Thank you for your kind words, hey. So the funny thing with the hippos, the hippos felt like it was the warm up. Um, um, no, Paul, no. So I, I go through all of that and I meet this lovely lass. I fall in love. I get married. I come to the States. I build a successful life, a successful career, so-called the American dream. And then uh, about five, six years ago, the things all just go pear-shaped. Um, I come home one day from a business trip and... It had been in the offing, but the woman I was married to decided she doesn't want to be married. At the same time, I go and my doctor explains why I'm not feeling so well. It turns out that all sorts of cancer, bacteria, pathogens, amoeba flukes have taken everywhere from my brain, my lungs, my pancreas, my liver, my kidney. Like Western medicine is like, eh, not looking so good. So 
life kind of got turned upside down, but kind of like with that hippo, it's like stuff happens, you get to choose what happens next. So got my affairs in order as best I could. And then um, I did what anyone like me would do. I went off to Israel, I went to the Holy Land, and I tried to reconnect with some kind of spiritual being with what I call God for me. And then I went to the Himalayas. I spent some time there, went looking for the come up. I got to spend some time with the Karamapa Lama. I got to walk around the Himalayas. I got to do a whole lot of soul searching. And then I, I went to the Amazon and I spent some time in the middle of the Amazon in Bolivia with a shaman who did some work with me. And once I finished with all of that, I came back to the States and I went to the New York Center of Innovative Medicine. They did a whole bunch of work on me. And it was interesting because here I was in New York with the most innovative approach to medicine that I could find on the face of the planet. And what they were doing tied in so perfectly with what had happened in Israel, what had happened in uh, Nepal, what had happened in the, the Amazon and Bolivia, which was this, I discovered this magic elixir for saving your life. And a, about a year and a half after being told, I was like, I best get my affairs in order and do it quickly. I got a completely clean bill of health. Oh my. And it, it, it was all, as corny as it sounds, the science backed it up. It was be grateful. It turns out if you find ways to be grateful, if you find things in life to be grateful for, it shifts your heart rate variability, which does something to your neurochemistry, which helps your body heal. And then if you're kind, you find ways to be kind to yourself and kind to others. One, those activities are good for you. Okay, I'm only going to do things that take care of my body. Probably a better chance of healing. But again, from a psychoneuroimmunological perspective, it takes off all sorts of responses. And then if you just do the next right thing, like do something that's going to take care of you, take care of someone else, it turns out that this kicks all sorts of neurological, neurochemical, neurophysiological responses that help your body to recover and heal. So it was awesome. So a couple of years later, I'm like, wow. I'm alive. All the things that had been trying to harm me, the, the cancer, the amoeba, the bacteria, the flukes, the, all the things I can't even pronounce, um, the woman I was married to, everything that had been trying to hurt me was gone from my life. And I felt like I had this brand new stretch. And then COVID came. Mm. And that truly sucked. But not just for me, for everyone in the world, right? So trying to navigate COVID. And one of the ways I did that is I would go running. I had special, I, my daughter had special needs. And um, I'd heard about this thing, the marathon, the Sable. And I, I was training for that. And COVID meant I had a lot of time to train. And then when I say the hippo was training wheels, the worst thing that I can imagine happening to me happened. My daughter died two months into COVID. She was 15. And... That really made me dig deep into everything I'd learned about being grateful, being kind, doing the next right thing. Because I still had to live. I still have two other beautiful children and their mom. And how was I going to show up in life? And then I had COVID and the implications of business. And it, it really became an opportunity to kind of walk the talk that Dr. Nube had given me way back when, when mm -hmm. he had told me that 
the requests I make, the way I show up, the conversations impact how people react around me. He reminded me that if I hadn't shown up that way, I wouldn't have any arms and I'd have one leg left. He reminded me that I'm the sum of my choices. I get to choose who, what, and where I choose to be in life and what happens next. I got to remember the stuff I learned in Israel and Nepal and in Bolivia, that if I'm grateful, if I'm kind, and if I look to do the next right thing, I get to navigate it all. And thank God for that, because I think that's, that's what enabled me to move through that. So when you say, what am I up to now? I just wrote a book about that, um, Mark for Life, the subtitle, Finding Grace and Grit, where you least expect it. Um, because I think that's the beautiful thing that everyone listening to this, I think that we all have in common is, is we do have these depths of grace and grit. We just have to access them. I'm running the marathon to Salvo in a couple of weeks. I have a foundation, a 501c3. Um, we're raising money for special needs and terminally ill kids. And just getting on with living, you know, we get this one shot at it. We might as well make the most of it. It's incredible, Paul. It's absolutely incredible. And and uh, yeah, I just I just echo what I, I've said again. I feel like you've given us, you've you've really given me a, a, a different perspective of of looking at hardships in life. And we, you know, we all go through different things through different phases of our lives. But it is really how we show up and how we navigate and how we carry ourselves that can make the biggest change to our rehabilitation process or how we get through that moment in time, um, which I, I think is an amazing takeaway and an amazing round off to the end of this episode. I'm definitely going to go and grab myself a copy of this book because as much as I've heard your story, I, I just, I find you really, really great energy. And so I just want to, want to hear more about your life experience and how you you've navigated things but I, I wish you the best of luck you won't need it but go and smash that marathon that you're you're doing in a couple of weeks and Paul thank you so much for being here enjoy the rest of your day oh thank you thank you so much <laughs> and thank you for inviting me onto your show it's been an absolute treat and that concludes this episode of Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. That is me. I hope you enjoyed it. Hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and I will see you soon.